Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. In this study guide, I'm going to be chatting about absolute trash king, George Gordon Byron, the sixth Baron Byron, also known as Lord Byron. And when I say he's an absolute trash king, I don't just mean that he was really scandalous during his own lifetime. As it turns out, Lord Byron is kind of a horrible human being, which is why it's really fun to discuss him while I'm in vacation in the kingdom of trash itself, Los Angeles, California. Enjoy the dulcet tones of the ocean in the background as I chat about Lord Byron. JK, you probably won't hear the ocean in the background. As always, I've found a walk-in closet from which to record this podcast. And as always, I have a ton of cold brew at the ready to resume my usual puppy can-do attitude. Anyways, your English teacher may have mentioned Lord Byron as that scandalous poet who you would definitely read when you got older, but who you never actually read once you were older. And Lord Byron definitely is scandalous, but he's a lot more than that. His study guide involves a bear, so many affairs, oh my god you guys, so many affairs, and some possible incest. Let's begin. The man who one day would be Lord Byron is born on January 22nd, 1788 as George Gordon Byron. Most biographies of Byron say he was born in London, but I did find a few sources that suggested that maybe he was born in Dover, but that's only a suggestion, so let's stick to London. Byron is the son of John Byron and his second wife, Catherine Gordon. His father's nickname was Mad Jack, which basically gives you all the information you need to know about John Byron. Here's a helpful hint. If you ever are interested in dating a guy whose nickname involves the word mad, don't do it. Mad Jack Byron has a reputation for gambling and womanizing. In 1778, 10 years before our Byron was even born, he had run off to France with a very married woman. Amelia Darcy. Amelia Darcy manages to get herself unmarried. She and John get married, and they end up having a kiddo, Augusta Lee. However, Amelia Darcy dies in 1784, and suddenly John Byron is a widower with a daughter and a ton of debt. Being a single man in want of a large fortune, he does what any single man would do. He goes to the seaside city of Bath, and when he's in Bath, John Byron meets Catherine Gordon, who's not very pretty, but she's young. She comes from a crazy family history that has quite a bit of mysterious death involved, and she has an absolutely massive family fortune. The two hit it off, and John decides to marry her because, did I mention that Catherine Gordon had an absolutely massive family fortune? The Gordon family isn't exactly thrilled with the idea of Catherine marrying John, so they make him take her name in order to get married. This isn't a woo feminism moment. It's more of a we really don't want you to marry our daughter moment, but John Byron is desperate for the cash. He puts the patriarchy aside, takes the last name Gordon, marries Catherine in 1785, and later that year, he is going to get arrested for not paying his debts. Good job, John. Ultimately, in 1788, Catherine and John have their son, George, George Gordon Byron, the hero of today's study guide. Lord Byron is born as not the most exciting baby. He has a misshapen right foot, which may have either been dysplasia or a club foot. We're not exactly sure why he was born with this deformity. Modern scientists think it might have been due to a lack of oxygen during birth, but Lord Byron blamed his mother. He said he had the misshapen right foot because Catherine wore a really tight corset for most of the pregnancy, and that prevented his foot from fully growing, which... Yeah, that's not really how science worked. Due to his injured right foot, 
Byron is going to have a limp for most of his childhood. He's going to have to wear special shoes and iron braces as a young boy, and it's going to make walking pretty difficult. Byron is going to be really self-conscious of the limp. He calls himself the limping devil throughout his riding, throughout his life. And as he got older, he tried to pretend like there was nothing wrong. He refused to wear special shoes or a brace on his foot, which made it really hard for him to walk, which made it difficult for him to be active, which meant that Lord Byron was going to have some issues with his weight throughout his life. By the time Byron is born, his father had managed to run through his mother's fairly sizable fortune. And just like that, John Byron is back to being in debt. Once he's in debt that he cannot pay, John Byron fled first to the Isle of Wight and then on to Paris so he wouldn't be thrown in prison again. As a result of being abandoned by her husband, Catherine moved first to London to give birth to Byron and then up to the Scottish city of Aberdeen. In Aberdeen, Byron and his mother live above a shop. This is really embarrassing for both of them. Remember, Catherine Gordon comes from a super wealthy family. She should be living in a nice home of her own with plenty of servants. But instead, she's so poor at this point that she's forced to live in a shop with no servants like some common human. And here, of course, is the bit where I have to pause and be like, yes, while Catherine and Lord Byron were poor, they were still better off than probably 99% of the English population. Thanks to the lack of money, Catherine is mostly going to be raising the young Lord Byron by herself without the help of servants. And young Lord Byron has a reputation for being a difficult child. He has such a wild temper that one time when he was mad, he bit a plate in half. I'm not sure what sort of plate this was, but either way, that's really impressive and probably pretty painful. The only way that Byron and his mother really bonded was by books. Catherine taught Lord Byron how to read, and as it turned out, he loved reading. Most of his reading at an early age focused on the Bible, and he particularly liked the Old Testament because he thought it was more interesting than the New Testament. In 1791, when Byron is only three, his father dies. This is tragic for Lord Byron for a wide variety of reasons. First, his dad's dead. That's always sad. And second, slightly more important for the young toddler and his mother, suddenly the three-year-old Byron is in charge of paying off all of his father's debts, even though he can barely walk because, you know, he's three. Luckily for Catherine and Byron, Catherine's family comes through, they lend them a little bit of money, so Catherine is able to pay off the worst of John's debts, and neither Catherine nor Lord Byron have to worry about being set to debtor's prison just yet. Pretty soon after his father dies, Catherine just can't handle her son's temper anymore, so she starts sending him to school at about the age of five, and Byron really enjoys his early years in school. Remember, he loves reading, and when he's in school, he starts getting introduced to history and more proper literature beyond just the Bible. Byron is going to be a massive history buff. He's going to have a special soft spot for Roman history, like so many of us history podcasters. Soon after starting school, Byron gets sick with a fever. This is the first time we see sickness really impacting Byron's life, but don't worry, it won't be the last. He goes to the Scottish Highlands to recover, and during his time in the Scottish Highlands, he meets and falls in love with one of his cousins, Mary. And much like this not being the last time he's going to get sick, this is also not going to be the last time that Byron falls head over heels with someone he is closely related to. A few years after Byron's first sickness, in 1798, his uncle dies, and suddenly 10-year-old George Gordon Byron becomes sixth Baron Byron, so now it really is okay to call him Lord Byron. All those times earlier when I was calling him Lord Byron were super ahistoric of me. I know, such a bad podcaster. 
Thanks to his uncle's death, not only does Byron get the title Lord Byron, he also gets the family estate and Newstead Abbey, which means that he and his mother move down to Nottingham and into the Abbey. However, there's not that much money associated with the title and the estate, because much like his father, Byron's uncle had run through most of the family inheritance. In fact, Byron's mother has to sell a lot of her furniture in order to pay for the move and for Byron's uncle's funeral. Even though there's not a lot of money in it, young Byron is decently excited to be a lord. I mean, what 10-year-old wouldn't be excited to have a title? However, during the move to Nottingham, some bad things start happening in Lord Byron's life. It's around this time that he most likely got physically and possibly sexually abused by a servant, May Gray, as well as by a doctor, Dr. Lavender, who came to try to fix his foot. It's also at this time that we start to see a falling out between Lord Byron and his mother. He felt like his mother was too concerned about money. She was too coarse. She wasn't a good role model for him as a lord. Once the family is down in Nottingham, Byron is sent to the school of Dr. William Glennie, and it's at Glennie School that Byron and his mother continue falling out. Glennie and Catherine Gordon fight over the best way to educate Byron and what his day-to-day -day schedule should be like, and Byron is going to take Glennie's side over his mother. Even though he's fighting a lot with his mother at school, Byron is going to continue to embrace a love of literature and history, and it's at Glennie's school that Byron's going to be writing some of his earliest poems. They are, surprise, surprise, love poems to one of his cousins, Margaret Parker. Some things never change. In 1801, Lord Byron is 13 years old. It's time for him to be sent off to a proper English boarding school for a proper English lord. And in 1801, you have two options for lordly English boarding schools, Eton and Harrow. Byron goes to Harrow. He does not have a great start there. First, even though he's a lord, he's a poor lord. And we've discussed how Byron actually wasn't that poor. Then there's the matter of his misshapen foot. And because children are the worst, he is mercilessly teased for that. He's going to face some pretty awful physical abuse from the older boys at Harrow. And honestly, the ways that physical abuse was codified in English male boarding schools could be a whole other podcast subject. And finally, Lord Byron doesn't have the best educational background when he gets to Harrow. He is so behind that for the first few terms at Harrow, he needs one-on-one -on -one tutoring from the headmaster's son. Eventually, though, Byron does catch up with the other students. He continues his love of history, and he does manage to make a few close friends at Harrow. His two major friendships are going to be with a young man named John Fitzgibbon and a young man named John Thomas Claridge. His friendship with Claridge is particularly important because this is the first time we see Byron having a possibly sexual relationship with a guy. Byron, being Byron, is not just having affairs with women, he is pretty aggressively bisexual, and Claridge's relationship sort of marks the beginning of that. Also, while he's at Harrow, Byron is going to meet yet another cousin of his, Mary Chalworth, and fall head over heels in love with her. Byron is 15, Mary is 18, and she is engaged to a man who is not Byron. Byron does not let this stop him. He decides that he's going to leave school and run off with Mary, and she's like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Eventually, a very sad young Lord Byron goes back to Harrow, but he's still in love with Mary Chaworth. To attempt to get over Mary, he starts writing letters to his older half-sister, Augusta Lee, who was his father's daughter. In their letters, the two start bonding over the loss of their father, and Byron starts telling Augusta about how much he hates his mother, and slowly, the two half-siblings get very close. Remember that. It's going to be important later on. In 1805, Byron is done 
with Hero. He's 18, he's a young lord, it's time for him to go up to Oxbridge and continue wasting his life. He ends up going to Trinity College in Cambridge. When he starts Trinity, Byron also publishes his first book of poems. However, soon after the book is published, Byron destroys all of the copies because one of his friends says that the poems aren't too good and that they're too focused on love and sex. But come on, honestly, what 18-year-old's poetry isn't too focused on love and sex? Don't be sad about other people's criticism, Byron. So, let's quickly talk about Byron's time at Cambridge University, because it really is iconic. Byron is not a great college student. He thinks classes are dumb, he doesn't really go to class, instead he drinks a ton, goes deeply in debt because he decides the number one thing he needs to do at Cambridge is keep racehorses, which are very expensive, and he also has a pet bear in order to protest the college's policy of not allowing students to have dogs. Even though a bear is a much less optimal pet than a dog, he's allowed to keep the bear in his room, and he even considers trying to make the bear a fellow of the college. This does not happen, but the bear hangs out. In addition to skipping class and getting drunk and keeping a pet bear, all of which are totally normal co-ed behaviors, Byron is going to continue his trend of having a ton of sex and a ton of close male friendships, sometimes at the same time. Some of his male friendships at the time are going to involve men like John Cam Hophouse and Edward Noel Long, and then there's John Edelston. John Edelston is a local choir boy. The two become so close that while Byron is at Cambridge, they exchange rings and they make this whole plan to live with each other once they're done with school. But then Edelston has to go and ruin everything by dying of consumption. But Edelston isn't the only one who Byron is having sex with. He is having a ton of affairs with women as well. But Trinity College has this whole policy that women aren't allowed in the rooms of male students. Byron is going to get around that policy. He sneaks women into his dorm room by disguising them as page boys, because why not? And as and if all this wasn't enough, Byron is going to pick up two additional hobbies during his time at Cambridge. He's going to get into interior decorating. He completely redecorates Newstead Abbey with the help of some cool coffins and skulls, because who doesn't want a human skull in their bedroom? And he also gets into boxing. Byron loves boxing. It's when he starts getting into boxing during his time at Cambridge that we start seeing Byron's weight fluctuating a lot. This is going to be a trend throughout his life. He will put on a lot of weight and then go on some really weird restrictive diets, then put on a lot of weight, go on a restrictive diet, repeat, 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 which has caused some scholars to suggest that maybe Lord Byron had bulimia. So, that is Byron's time at Cambridge. Obviously, not the greatest student, does not win any awards, does not get a fellowship, rinse, repeat, etc, etc. However, there is one thing that Byron does achieve at Cambridge. He publishes a poetry collection in 1807 called Hours of Idleness. It does not go well. The Edinburgh Review writes Hours of Idleness, one of the meanest reviews of the year. And Byron reads this review and he's like, well, instead of getting mad, why don't I get even? And he writes a satire of the criticism of his poems. Really quickly, Byron's famous, not for his poetry, but for his critique of critiques. He's not just critiquing his critics, he's also going to be criticizing earlier romantic poets like William Wordsworth, who he considers to be a hypocrite because by now William Wordsworth is working for the conservative government as a distributor of stamps. 
after Lord Byron publishes Hours of Idleness, he's actually going to join the English Parliament very briefly. Remember, he is a lord. He has a seat in the House of Lords, and he takes that seat in March 1809, although he's going to leave it pretty quick because in June of 1809, he's going to go on a two-year trip of Europe. More on that very soon. In Parliament, Lord Byron is going to have a reputation of loving reform. He's one of the few MPs who supports the anti-technology Luddite movement, and in one of his few speeches to Parliament, he speaks out in support of increased tolerance for Catholics. Lord Byron doesn't spend that much time in Parliament. He only gives a few speeches, but when he is in Parliament and when he does give speeches, they get a ton of attention because Lord Byron has a reputation. You're going to listen to him. So, he's in Parliament, but in June 1809, he decides to leave England for a bit. There are a few reasons for why Lord Byron decides to go on this little Euro trip. First reason, he's pretty deeply in debt due to his extravagance at Cambridge, and he doesn't really have money to pay off these debts, so he can avoid it by going to Europe. Reason two, Mary Chalworth is now married, and he doesn't want to run into her in English society. He can avoid that by going to Europe. Reason number three, he really enjoys same-sex relationships, which are aggressively illegal in England, and if he goes to certain countries in Europe, he doesn't have to worry about being arrested quite as much. For all of these reasons, Byron is going to spend between 1809 and 1811 on a grand tour of Europe. Unlike traditional grand tours of Europe, Byron isn't going to be traveling in France, in Germany, and Italy. Because 1809 and 1811 is right in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, going to France and Germany is a great way to have your head blown off by a cannon, and Byron isn't quite that suicidal. Instead, his tour is mostly going to take him to the eastern bit of the Mediterranean. Think Albania and Greece. He's going to go on this tour with his Cambridge friend, John Cam Hobhouse. The two friends start out in Portugal, and then they move on to Athens. In Athens, Lord Byron has two questionable sexual relationships. He attempts to buy a girl, possibly for sexual reasons, possibly out of the goodness of his heart, but really, did Byron have any goodness in his heart? Unlikely. He also has what most likely was a sexual relationship with a teenage boy in Athens because, yeah, as it turns out, Lord Byron is really into teenage boys, which, not good, Lord Byron. Please keep it in your pants. Even if this relationship wasn't sexual, Lord Byron hopes a teenage boy gets set up at a nice private school and then lends him 7,000 pounds, which he then requests back because, oh, would you look at that? Being in debt certainly is a bitch. While Byron is hanging out in Athens, having an epic amount of sex, he also gets into a bit of a spat with Lord Elgin over the whole Elgin marbles being stolen from the Acropolis, and this is one of the few times where I am firmly Team Byron. Do not loot a country of their historic treasures. That is bad. After Athens, Hobhouse and Byron go to Turkey, Albania, and Malta. Byron does a nice little swim across the Hellespont. As it turns out, Byron loves swimming. It's one of the few sports he can do really well, even with his bad foot, and he's going to be a big swimmer for the rest of his life. While they're in Albania, Byron almost has to duel a local politician when he may or may not have an affair with the politician's wife, which is, once again, so Byron. He hangs out with some sultans, gets super inspired by Mediterranean culture, and then, in 1811, returns back to England because, would you look at that, his mother had died, most likely of dropsy, and those pesky, pesky debts have not gone away. When Byron gets back to England in 1811, he starts writing. In the next year, in 1812, he publishes the first two cantos of Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which are based on his experiences of traveling and learning in Europe. Child Harold's Pilgrimage is super popular. Paul 
part of the popularity is because it is really well written and really interesting and part of the popularity of child harold is because it's super controversial due to some of byron's religious discussions in the poem booksellers refuse to publish it so of course everyone wants to read it child harold has so much buzz that princess caroline the prince regent's wife insists on meeting byron he's suddenly the most famous writer in England, and Byron is going to take advantage of this by having quite a few affairs. Let's talk about the two most famous affairs that Byron has in this time period. Caroline Lamb, the wife of the future Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, and his possible affair with his half-sister, Augusta Lee. First, Caroline Lamb. Caroline and Byron are pretty open about the fact that they're seeing each other, which is very shocking to polite society. Caroline is the one who gives Lord Byron the iconic line of being mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Byron's the one who ends the affair, and even once the affair is done, Caroline's not over Byron. She's going to keep going to his house, dressed up as page boys, in order to try to see him. She's going to write him all these long letters, and Byron isn't going to be that nice about it. He's going to write her this really cruel poem in response called Remember Thee, Remember Thee, where he publicly mocks her love for him. And then there's Augusta Lee. Augusta is Byron's older half-sister, and by about 1812, the rumor that they're sleeping together is pretty public. Everyone who knows anything is convinced that Augusta's daughter, Medora, is Byron's daughter as well. And Augusta and Byron are like, yeah, no, our relationship is super innocent. Medora definitely isn't the product of incest. I mean, look at the kid. She's not misshapen or anything. She's not hairy. Definitely not incestuous. But then in one of Byron's poems, he names the love interest Medora, and everyone's like, hey, Byron, what are you doing? Obviously, Byron's going to be sleeping with more than just Augusta and Caroline. They're just the two most famous women. He's also going to be writing a lot during this time period. He has other popular poems, like The Corsair, which is clearly a pirate poem about himself and is super popular. The Corsair sells 10,000 copies on its first day of publication. And even though The Corsair is making a ton of money, Byron actually isn't seeing most of the money because Lord Byron, being Lord Byron, refuses to accept payment for his writing because that would be low class. He literally gives away the copyright on his poems, which is really nice of him, but also extremely stupid because he's chronically in debt and having copyright and getting paid actually would have been really helpful for him. In 18... In 1815, the whole not having copyright on his poems is really going to bite Lord Byron in the ass because he publishes Hebrew Melodies. While Hebrew Melodies sells about 10,000 copies in total, its print run is super expensive. Byron ends up spending more than he makes on the poem, and by now he's so deeply in debt that he has to sell his townhouse in London. And his 1815 troubles are only just beginning. In 1815, Lord Byron shocks everyone by getting married. He marries Annabella Milbank, the cousin of Caroline Lamb. Byron first proposed to Annabella in 1812, but she rejected him because they didn't know each other that well and because of his reputation. Two years later, in 1814, Byron proposes a second time, and even though his reputation is even worse, Annabella accepts the proposal because they'd been exchanging letters, she'd grown to like him, etc., etc. Everyone is shocked by the engagement. Annabella and Byron are pretty incompatible. Annabella Annabella has a reputation for being naive and unsophisticated, if very intellectual. And Lord Byron, well, he's Lord Byron. However, the Millibank family does have money, and Byron needs the money. So in January 1815, the two get married. The marriage does not go well. 
First, the Milbanks don't quite have the amount of money that Byron was expecting. And second, and possibly more important, from the get-go, Lord Byron stays really close to his half-sister Augusta. Maybe a little too close. For example, he has Augusta move in with him and Annabella, and he makes this big deal about how he will only stay in Annabella's rooms when Augusta is on her period, which, ugh, poor Annabella. A few months into the marriage, he's basically emotionally and mentally abusing Annabella. Despite the complete decay in the relationship, Annabella and Byron do have a daughter named Ada in December 1815, about a year into the marriage. And as a not-so-fun side note, Byron at this point does what I think might be the worst thing that Byron's done yet. Two days after Annabella had given birth to Ada, he comes into her bedroom and straight-up rapes her. Fuck you, Lord Byron. A month after giving birth, Annabella has had enough. She's sick of Byron. She's sick of him being a physically and emotionally abusive asshole. She takes her daughter and she leaves. A few months later, so does Augusta. And suddenly, Lord Byron is all alone. He copes with this by starting an affair with radical philosopher William Godwin's stepdaughter, Claire Claremont. In April 1816, Lord Byron decides that he's had enough with England and he moves to Europe for good, partially to get over Annabella's separation from him and partially to avoid the debts, which yet again are mounting. When he leaves Europe, he goes with his physician, John Polidori, who will later on write a little novella called The Vampire, which is one of the first vampire stories in English literature. Polidori and Byron start out hanging out in Belgium, but they quickly move to Lake Geneva in Switzerland. And it's during this time in Lake Geneva that Lord Byron is going to be a bystander to the creation of Frankenstein. At Lake Geneva, he meets Percy Shelley and Mary Godwin, who is in love with Percy Shelley. Byron tries to sleep with Mary Godwin, and she's like, yeah, no, I'm not into you. I'm too busy writing one of the first sci-fi novels at the age of 17, Be Gone, Foul Man. Oh, and would you look at that? Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, is also in Switzerland. Byron's pretty over Claire Claremont. He's more of a love em or leave em type, and the relationship between those two quickly sours, which is really awkward because now Claire is pregnant with Byron's child. During the time that he's in Switzerland, Byron continues writing, he works on adding cantos to Child Harold, and starts a three-act play called Manfred, which basically is a thesis about his love for his half-sister. No big deal. By the end of the summer, the Shelleys and Claire leave Switzerland, Claire goes back to England, and gives birth to Byron's daughter. After his time in Switzerland, Byron moves on, this time to Venice. While he's in Venice, he starts working on his magnum opus, the poem Don Juan, and promptly enters into a love triangle with his landlord's wife, Mariana Segati, and a local woman, Margarita Cogni. The love triangle comes to a climax when Margarita tries to throw herself in a canal over a fit of sadness because Byron doesn't love her enough. Luckily for Margarita, she survives. While he's in Venice, Byron also agrees to recognize Claire's daughter, Alba, as his child. Since Claire is a single woman in London and her daughter is illegitimate, her life isn't going great, so she sends Alba to Byron to temporarily name. As soon as Alba is in Byron's custody, he renames her to Allegra and sends her to a convent and tells the nuns to not let Claire ever see her again. Once again, Byron is being an absolute trash human being. He spends the next few years in Italy writing, sleeping around, the usual, the usual. Then, in 1819, Byron meets Countess Teresa Giuccioli. 
Teresa is only 18. She is married to a count in his 40s. And as soon as Teresa sees Byron, she falls head over heels in love with him. Which, what is it about Byron? Like, why are all these women just throwing themselves at him? When you look at photos, he's not even that good looking. Teresa's like, I'm willing to divorce my husband, even though that goes against the Catholic Church and elope with you. And Byron's like, eh, let's not do that and say we did. Even though he's not willing to fully commit to Teresa, he does move to the city of Ravenna so he can be a little closer to the Countess. While he's in Ravenna, he lives with Teresa and her husband and continues working on Don Juan. In 1820, Teresa gets her divorce, but Byron isn't quite ready to fully commit. Number one, that would mean he couldn't keep sleeping around. And number two, Byron has gotten super into the Italian independence movement. He's joined an Italian secret society, and he wants to help liberate northern Italy from the Austrian Empire. Unluckily for Byron, he gets caught up by the authorities and he is threatened by arrest and several of Teresa's family members actually do get arrested due to their association with him. As a result, Byron is going to have to lay low for a bit and not really talk radical politics. As part of his whole laying low thing, in 1821, Byron leaves Ravenna and moves to Pisa where he continues working on Don Juan. He also reconnects with Percy Shelley, who by now is married to Mary, and the two families start a little literary society in Pisa. Byron also writes a pretty nasty political poem, A Vision of Judgment, where he mocks both the recently dead King George III of England, as well as England's current poet laureate, Robert Southey, and kind of pisses off everyone in the process. And then we get to 1822. 1822 was not a good year for Lord Byron. First, his daughter Allegra with Claire Claremont dies of a fever. Byron has her embalmed and sends her body back to England so her mother, who hadn't seen her in years, can finally be reunited with her dead daughter. That same year, Percy Shelley dies in a boating accident. Shelley's death is really hard for Lord Byron. Shelley was one of his closest literary friends, and he kind of blames himself for Shelley's death because Shelley was sailing in a boat that Byron had given him when he died. Byron goes to Shelley's cremation and gets totally drunk as a way of celebrating his dead friend. The next year, Byron decides that he's done with Italy, and he decides to move to Greece with Teresa's brother, Pietro, to help out with the Greek independence movement. In 1823, Greece is still part of the Ottoman Empire, but Greece would not like to be part of the Ottoman Empire. Most people in Greece are Orthodox Christians, while the Ottoman Empire is Muslim. That causes a lot of political and religious tension, and Greece is like, eh, independence sounds cute, and a lot of other European countries are like, well, Greece is the home of humanism and classical literature and art. Sounds cute. Let's have Greece be an independent country. So by 1823, the independence movement in Greece is becoming a pet cause for various rich Europeans, and Lord Byron is no exception. He and Pietro arrive in Greece in August 1823. For a bit, he's bouncing between various Ionian islands, including Ithaca, so he can see the home of Odysseus. Oh my gosh! So exciting. And he ultimately makes it to mainland Greece by January 1824. Once he's at Greece, Byron is mostly going to be living by Mythologi. His goal is to help out the Greek Revolution, but honestly, he's pretty hapless at it. By this point, the independence movement is really divided based on tribal and ethnic identity, and it's really hard to keep track of everyone and get everyone on the same page. 
Lord Byron keeps having to bribe people to fight and then getting annoyed when they don't fight and then paying them more money and then getting double crossed and it's this big whole mess and really not that much fighting is going on. On top of it, Byron's right-hand man is Pietro, Teresa's brother, and if Byron's incompetent at the whole organizing and fighting thing, Pietro's even worse, which makes him perfect to be Byron's assistant. Lord Byron ends up selling his Scottish estate in order to raise money for the Greek independence movement, specifically to try to help raise money to build up a Greek navy, but the money doesn't go anywhere because of the whole bribery and incompetence nonsense. Even though Byron himself doesn't do that much to help the Greeks militarily, his living in Greece creates a lot of attention for the cause of Greek independence. It helps make the Greek Revolution a trendy pet cause for rich English nobles. Suddenly, a lot of people in England are like, oh yeah, the Greeks should be independent because Lord Byron says so, and we idolize Lord Byron. And eventually, with English help, Greece will become independent in 1830, although Byron will be dead by then. Byron also is going to do some vague humanitarian stuff during his time in Greece. He's going to adopt an orphaned Turkish child, and as far as I was able to determine, nothing hinky and sexual happened between Byron and this kid, which really is a first. He also is going to give his page boy Lucas about $24,000 to help out with his education and family, and I couldn't determine if that was $24,000 in 1820 money, in which case, holy fuck, ton of money, or if it was $24,000 in 2019 money, in which case still a lot of money, but not quite as much money. By February 1824, Lord Byron is ready to go fight. His plan is to go to Corinth to fight the Ottomans at Lepanto, but along the way he catches a fever and doesn't quite recover. He undergoes multiple rounds of bloodletting. For a while, it looks like maybe he'll be better, but he develops sepsis and ends up dying in Misalonghi on April 19th, 1824, at the age of 36. Lord Byron's death is completely shocking. No one's expecting him to die. He's rich. He's young. His journey to Greece was supposed to stir up excitement for the cause. He wasn't supposed to become this martyr of Greek independence. He was supposed to go back to Italy and keep sleeping with women and write more poetry. Heck, he hadn't even finished Don Juan when he died. Once Byron's dead, there's a lot of debate over what to do with his body. Before his death, Byron had said he wants his body to stay in one piece and to be buried in Greece. Some of his friends are like, okay, we should respect that. Let's bury Lord Byron at their Acropolis. But other friends are like, no, we shouldn't do that. If we bury him at the Acropolis, it'll make the Acropolis a target for Ottoman attacks and raids. Ultimately, his body is split up, which is exactly what Byron didn't want to have happen. His lungs are left in Lepanto, and the rest of his remains are embalmed and sent back to England and are buried in Hucknall, Nottingham, near the family estate. After his death, a bunch of Byron's friends raise money to build a statue in his honor. However, no one actually wants to put up the statue because at the time of his death, Lord Byron still has a bit of a reputation. Finally, Cambridge University is like, look, we'll take the statue. Yes, Lord Byron is a vaguely pedophilic, sexually abusive playboy who wrote some good poems, but he was an alum. Might as well take it. It's not until 1969 that Westminster Abbey agreed to let him in to the poet's corner. That's over a hundred years after his death. So, that is the life of Lord Byron. For those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full lecture, let's do a little recap. Lord Byron is born to John Byron and Catherine Gordon. His father, while from a noble family, has no money, while his mother does have money. Sadly, his father runs through most of the family fortune before Byron is three and then dies. 
Lord Byron and his mother spend a few years trying to make ends meet in Aberdeen before Byron's uncle dies, leaving Byron the family estate, the family title, and absolutely no money. Young Lord Byron has a massive temper issue, although he does enjoy to read. He ends up going to Harrow, which he absolutely hates, although he does make a few platonic and not-so-platonic guy friends. After Harrow, it's off to Cambridge. Byron is an awful student. He spends most of his time at college sleeping around, getting drunk, and getting in debt, although he does have a pet bear, so that's cool. After college, Byron publishes a book. It gets terrible reviews, but Byron turns the bad reviews good by writing a really great satire of his critics, which makes him famous in England. After his book comes out, he spends two years in Europe to avoid his creditors and takes a lot of inspo from this journey. His little European trip causes him to write Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which is the bestseller of 1812. Suddenly, Lord Byron is the most famous writer in England, and he takes advantage of his reputation by having a ton of affairs, including one with his half-sister, which isn't problematic in the least. Lord Byron keeps writing, he goes into debt because he refuses to be paid for his writing, but also refuses to give up his lavish lifestyle. In 1815, Byron is forced to sell his house, but he also gets married. This marriage ends terribly because, as it turns out, Lord Byron is an abusive piece of shit, but he and his wife do have a daughter, Ada, before they separate. After the separation, Lord Byron moves to Europe for good. Highlights of his time in Europe include meeting the Shelleys in Switzerland, where he gets to watch Mary Shelley write Frankenstein, getting Mary Shelley's stepsister pregnant, and then stealing her baby, entering into several love triangles in Italy, and finally joining up with the Greek independence movement in Greece, where he will die of a fever at the ancient age of 36. So, Let's talk a little bit about Lord Byron's writing. Lord Byron wrote in a ton of styles. He truly was a prolific writer, especially when you consider that he was only alive for 36 years. While he wrote in a lot of styles, his best writing tended to be in non-traditional styles. He was most known for his satire and for his lyric poetry in blank verse. He first got his fame with his criticism. Remember, his biggest first success was the critique he wrote of his critics, and he's going to keep writing critiques, both of his critics and of earlier romantic poets, especially of William Wordsworth, who he really just didn't like. But don't worry, William Wordsworth also didn't like him and wasn't crying over the hate from Lord Byron. Lord Byron is most famous for Child Harold's pilgrimage in Don Juan. Child Harold tells the story of a young man on a journey for meaning. It's really autobiographical. It's dealing with ideas of disillusionment after the French Revolution and re-education and getting inspiration from classical culture and the Middle East, which all happened to Lord Byron in his post-college Euro trip. And like I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, it was a runaway bestseller, partially because booksellers refused to publish it. Don Juan, meanwhile, is based on the traditional Don Juan story, but it was slightly more satirical. In Byron's version, Don Juan was the seduced and not the seducer. At the time of Byron's death, Don Juan was unfinished. Some of Byron's other major works included The Corsair, which is a fun poem about a pirate, Manfred, a supernatural and gothic play about a mysterious nobleman, and my personal favorite, Epitaph to a Dog, which he wrote in honor of his dog Boson after Boson died of rabies, which is really sweet. The big thing that Byron is most famous for in 2019 is the idea of the Byronic hero. A Byronic hero is a moody character who can still feel deep love, and that was a really popular trope, and it remains a popular trope. If you've ever read a book or seen a TV show with a tall, dark, handsome, and mysterious love interest, that's your Byronic hero. 
think he's Cliff and Wuthering Heights or Jughead Jones from Riverdale. Thanks, Lord Byron. Because this podcast is about a romantic writer, I'm going to be closing it out with a poem by Lord Byron. I'm doing She Walks in Beauty, which Byron wrote in 1813, and like so many of Lord Byron's poems, is most likely about one of his female relatives. Nice and cute. Who doesn't love incest? She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in aspect and her eyes, thus mellow to tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. One shade when shade the more, when ray the less, had half impaired the nameless grace which waves in every raven tress, or softly lightens over her face, where thoughts serenely sweet express, how pure, how dear their dwelling place. And on that cheek, and over that brow, so soft, so calm, yet eloquent, the smiles that win, the tints that glow, but tell of days and goodness spent, a mind at peace with all below, a heart whose love is innocent. So, that's Lord Byron. My research for this episode mostly came from the biography Byron and Love by Edna O'Brien, the collection on Lord Byron edited by Harold Bloom, the biography Lord Byron by Peter Graham, and Leslie Marchand's Life of Byron. For a complete bibliography of sources as well as images for this episode, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next episode is going to be about Byron's bro, Percy Shelley. Until then, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. As always, you can message me on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod if you want some fun, dank Lord Byron memes, of which there are so many. You can visit the Instagram at Sad Girl Study. If you want to help out the podcast financially, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash sadgirlstudyguides. If you join at the $5 level or more a month, you get access to the really fun bi-monthly tangent casts. The next tangent cast is going to be about Lord Byron's daughter and everyone's favorite computer programmer, Ada Lovelace. If you can't subscribe, If you can't help out the podcast financially, that's also okay. The best way to help us grow is to tell a friend or subscribe to the podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you want us on another podcatcher and we're not there, let me know and I'll do my best to fix that. And as always, let me know how the podcast is going. Rate or review or else I'll be sad. Thanks.